Hello. You're tuned to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. We're pleased to have you join us. That just before he was taken to the cross, he looks Peter in the eye. Peter, after Peter adamantly denied to Jesus that he would ever deny him, Jesus says to him this, Simon, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What? Why would the Son of God, God in the flesh himself, God incarnate, have to pray anything? The book of 1 Timothy in the New Testament of the Bible was written as a letter from the Apostle Paul to a young man named Timothy to help instruct Timothy on how to deal with some of the issues in the Ephesian church. In tonight's discussion, Dr. Corbett hones in on what Paul taught was to be the priority before dealing with any issue, that being prayer. Let's join Dr. Corbett now for part three in this series, Dear Timothy, First of All, Pray. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at the first few verses. And let's pray. Father, as we open your word now, may your word open our heart. May your word be a light to us. And Father, may it shed light where we need to see. Father, have your way in us now through your word. And I pray, O oh God, that your word would transform us increasingly into the image and likeness of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. We're looking at Dear Timothy. This is Paul's epistle to Timothy in First and Second Timothy. I've mentioned some of the background to these epistles. Paul wrote, it seems, First Timothy with, with the actual expectation that he would be released from prison. It seems that he thought this would be uh, almost a formality. By the time we come to 2 Timothy, he's not that confident. In fact, he describes his race as being over. He describes that death was very near now to him. Probably a man, uh, I'm guessing, maybe approaching the, the age of 70 and we're talking around uh, 62 or so, 62, 63 AD. And the, what's called, the, if you're into the, the technical term, the Neronic persecution, that is of Nero. The Neronic persecution begins in 64 AD. And in that year, both uh, Paul, who was beheaded because he was a citizen, and Peter were martyred for Christ. So this is... We're calling this section, first of all, pray. So it's Paul's instructions to Timothy. This is what you do, Timothy. This is what I want you to do, Timothy. This is Timothy, who's based in Ephesus. Ephesus is a really interesting church to study. You'll note that more letters, more correspondence, more is written about the Ephesian church than any other church in the New Testament. The the letter to Timothy, if it was to Timothy, and it's from someone who describes him as my child, my dear child in the faith, if that's the case, it's a pretty cold letter, if it is that. My hunch is that there was probably something else that accompanied these epistles that were directly to Timothy. But these epistles were actually written to Timothy for the Ephesians to support the authority that Timothy was to have in Ephesus. And so what we have is a collection of house churches. We have some of these house church leaders apparently had strayed 
into teachings that were what we call Gnostic teachings. My guess is that if you watch what's called Christian TV and you heard a lot of very, very popular preachers, you would probably hear some of the same things that the Gnostic teachers taught. And my guess is that, sadly, my guess is that there'd be many Christians who couldn't spot the difference. And the reason I know that is because when I happen to listen or have people tell me who ring up, and I have people ring up from interstate and say, I heard such and such preacher say this, it didn't quite sound right, what do you make of it? And I go, that's Gnosticism, where the belief is that, for example, you can speak things into existence that were immaterial, you can speak them into material existence, you can do all kinds of things, because essentially you can do what God can do. Some of the verses that are twisted and misquoted, for example, we, we are created to carry and we're called to create the anointing of Christ. And the Bible says that Christ speaks those things which are not as if they were and they become, based on, uh, was it 1 Corinthians chapter 4. That, that is a distortion of the scripture. There are, there are many things that God does and only he can do because he's God and we can't do. The Gnostics, with it's a silent G in English, were teaching a whole range of things that are very, very popular today. For example, if you were to pray, how powerful would your prayers be? If you were to pray and fast, would they be any more powerful? And the Gnostics would say, absolutely. Why? Because the body is fundamentally evil. If you can punish your body in the service of Christ, you are doing something more spiritually powerful. So when Paul writes to the Colossians, because Epaphras, who was an evangelistic pastor, didn't know what to do with the Gnostics. He, could, he didn't have the intellectual ability to be able to counter their false teaching. We read in Colossians where Paul says, some teachers say, touch not, taste not. And he's referring to the Gnostics who are saying the material world is actually evil. When John writes his epistles and he says, those who deny that Christ has come in the flesh as the Gnostics did are not of Christ. They are not of God. So this Gnostic teaching, very, very subtle. And the reason it would be so subtle and very difficult for Christians to pick up on and discern it is because they use language that involves Jesus, God, Holy Spirit, salvation, redemption, spiritual power and the like. It's our lingo, but they use it with a twist. And Paul is now telling Timothy, you've got to correct these elders that have been swayed and really poisoned by this teaching. Two of Paul's colleagues are named and, shall we say, shamed in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 20-21 or so. Hymenius and Alexander, they have, Paul says, shipwrecked their faith. And he names them. He names them as those who once followed Christ and served alongside him, but now they've betrayed Christ and they no longer are loyal to Paul. So now Paul is instructing Timothy, you've got to set this church in order. You've got to put it in order. And later on, as we will see, he will say, some of these house church leaders need to be stood down and you need to appoint 
different leaders. And this is what you've got to look for. So that's coming up. In this section, what we see here is Paul is in prison. He's in Rome. It's not looking good. In fact, things are getting pretty tense in the Roman Empire at this time. And Paul, many scholars think, is now beginning to retreat. He's beginning to say, let's batten down the hatches. This is going to get really rocky. And the best thing we can do is survive. Let's see if we can just survive this. Hang in there and hold the fort. But there are other scholars who say Paul never, ever, ever did that. He never said, let's go for minimum. He never said, let's hold the fort. He was always talking about take territory, take ground spiritually. In other words, win the hearts, minds, and souls of people. So this is, first of all, pray. And we're going to see this from the opening verses. So why did Paul write Timothy? I've given you some of the reasons why he wrote it. There was the looming persecution that was, that was about to break loose, where it would be a bloodbath for uh, 42 months, three and a half years of the Neronic persecution. Paul, as I mentioned, he knew he was, he was at the end. That's why he could say, I'm ready. I'm already being poured out as an offering and the time for me to depart is at hand. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6. So the tone, as, we'll, as we're going to see now, the tone, knowing that, it sounds like Paul's given up, but he hasn't given up. He's now commissioning Timothy. This is what we ought to do. I'm about to leave this planet. I'm about to depart and go into my reward. But Timothy, this is what you ought to do. So the tone of 1st and 2nd Timothy is not defeatist. It's not, oh my goodness, we're dying. Let's see if we can at least, you know, hold the fort. That's not his attitude. And can I say, that's not our attitude either. It should never be our attitude. And so as we look at this, first of all, pray, have a look with me now. 1st Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. Note this. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, you could, do a, you could do a dictionary search on these words. You could do a biblical dictionary search on these words. Supplications, prayers, intercessions. You know what you discover? They're all basically saying the same thing. In other words, you don't need a, a master's degree in Greek to figure out Paul is saying, pray. And if you don't know what I mean, intercede. And if you still don't know what I mean, make supplication, which is like going before an official begging for tax relief or begging for mercy or something like that. It, it, it's a heartfelt thing. He's not, it's not the kind of prayers that we say at grace over our food. It's not the, the kind of prayers that are half-hearted and routine. These are passionate prayers that Paul is urging. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a, note these words, peaceful and quiet life. And this is why some people think, well, there you go, Paul's just, he just wants, doesn't want to rock the boat. He just wants the church to sort of go under the radar, not, not offend anybody, not, as we heard tonight, proselytize anybody. But that's not what he's saying. Godly 
and dignified in every way. So pray for those in authority that we can go about our business in a quiet, godly, dignified way, peacefully. So Paul was really instructing the Ephesian believers to pray evangelistic prayers, to pray evangelistic prayers. What if God, what if, and I don't think it is, but what if prayer is a matter of odds? You pray a hundred prayers, you may get one of them answered. What if it was that? What if it was that? Would we pray a thousand prayers for people to get saved? Do you see what I'm saying? In other words, even if it was that, would we up our prayers if it was based on the amount of prayer? Hmm, maybe. But I hope tonight that I show you that prayer is one of the means by which God has ordained that people will be successfully evangelized. As we track through the history of the Ephesian church, this church, scholars believe, would grow to about 6,000 people within a few years of these epistles. After Timothy, the apostle John would be based there. And we know that because he writes to the seven churches that he was supervising. And the first one was Ephesus, Revelation chapter two. So how do we know how can I support this statement that when he says, first of all, pray for these people, that the result may be this, but what is he actually saying to Timothy? This is what you are to lead the church in. And notice this, when is he to do it? First, first. Tonight, we have been praying as a church. We take this time each Sunday, each week to pray. And we always pray for people to come to know Christ. And I think that's really important. Can I just say, probably for the last 26 years that I've been pastoring here, we've done that. We've seen people come to know Christ and we continue to pray that it will happen and that more of it will happen. So how do we know, how can I justify that Paul is saying, pray for these people to be saved? Because of the next two verses. He goes on and explains what he's asking. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our, note the adjective, saviour, who desires all people to be saved. You can see that's got to be a clue as to what he's meaning when he says pray for these people. He's now saying this is a good thing to do because God desires all people to be saved. Therefore, I'm suggesting to you, he's asking them to pray that people will be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth, it says. And if you wonder, if, if you're thinking of your prayers for people's salvation as a matter of words, then use those words. May they come to the knowledge of the truth. I don't know that it is particularly a matter of words. I think it's a matter of heart cry. Here's what I hope that we see behind what Paul is telling Timothy to do. In the opening chapter, he's telling Timothy, correct these wayward leaders. Correct these leaders who are now bringing in these weird and wonderful ideas that sound 99.9% .9 like gospel and Christian truth. They're that close, but they're not. It's the 1% that could be deadly, spiritually deadly. And the first thing Paul is telling Timothy to do in the urgency of the error that is happening and creeping into the Ephesian church is to teach people how to pray, model it, and get them to pray for people to be saved. And this is why I'm gonna make this statement now. To be a shepherd, a home group leader, an elder, someone on the care team, a department leader, whatever your shepherding role looks like, 
is to lead other believers in prayers for the lost, to pray for the lost. Sometimes when people have said that, they have said it because they're an evangelist. And there are, I think, many evangelist pastors who say that. And when they say it, they say it in the sense of, this is the only thing the church is called to do. You should by now know that's not what I've ever said. We don't just focus on the lost. We focus on the one as well. That is those whom have been won to Christ. Because the Great Commission, as we have already looked at, is about teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So that's an important part of our mission as well as shepherds. But it doesn't negate that we are called, even if we're not evangelists, to have a heart to see people come to know Christ. And that heart is reflected in the way we pray. I find this interesting, that here the, the tension was building, the persecution was, was, was simmering. And Paul isn't saying, oh, I'm going to pray for you guys to make it through this time. I'm gonna... He's not saying that. He's saying, look beyond that and pray for people to come to know Christ. I wonder who was praying for the emperor. Nero never converted to Christ. The next, well, it was actually that year, there was, it's called the year of the four Caesars. Uh, Vitellius, Otho, Galba, and then Vespasian were the emperors that year, the Caesars. They didn't come to know Christ. But you know what happened in 313 AD? The emperor at that time, Constantine, did come to know Christ. I wonder who was praying. I wonder who was praying. I wonder what was happening in the church in Acts 6 when they just appointed deacons because there was complaining and grumbling in the church. Can you believe that? From the foundation of the church, there was complaining and grumbling. But someone was praying because they took Jesus seriously. Pray for those who persecute you and despise you. Who was the greatest persecutor around Acts 6, Acts 7, Acts 8, Paul. What happens in Acts chapter 9? Paul comes to Christ. I wonder, I wonder if someone was taking this seriously. And this is what we need to understand about prayer. And I say that knowing that there is a difference between apprehending and comprehending. I've used this illustration before. Back in the old days, we used to have electrical circuits in our homes and the like. I'm looking, I can't see a PowerPoint readily. But, but if you were to put a knife in a PowerPoint, which don't do, but now we have these trip switches that trip it off. But before we had trip switches, you'd be dead. You would be dead. And could anyone explain the electromagnetism current flow through your body that causes a cardiac arrest Is it because of that? Could anyone? All right, okay, we could go through the list. There might be a few, but I couldn't but I could apprehend that that's what would happen. So I may, I may not comprehend it, but I, I can see it. And I think for us, prayer is like that. I've heard some very simple, simplistic explanations of prayer. I've heard someone say, prayer is necessary because God needs the invitation. Uh, I think that's, we've got a problem here with your theology of God, if that's how you understand prayer. God needs to be invited to do something because he can't do it on his own initiative. I don't think that's true. So I think we need to not worry about comprehending it precisely, but let's see what scripture says about prayer. Because God has ordained two means. He's not only ordained it, he's decreed, that is you should do it, 
and ordained it, and this is what will happen if you do, two great means by which a person may come to accept the Saviour, and as Paul says here, come to the knowledge of the truth. So let's have a look. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Paul says this, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Here it is. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul is saying God gave him the grace to preach so that people could come to see the need, their need for the Saviour and that Jesus was that Saviour and that the rest of their life they, would, they could never plumb the depths of knowing Christ, the riches of Christ, the riches of Christ. So preaching is an ordained means by which people come to know Christ. Jesus did it. Jesus preached and taught. He did it throughout his ministry. We, we read the Gospels, particularly Luke and Matthew, and we may get the impression, especially from Matthew, that Jesus was baptised, went into the wilderness, came back out of the wilderness and went straight up a mountain and preached the Sermon on the Mount. Because Matthew is a Jew and is writing to a Jewish audience, he's assembling pieces of the ministry of Christ and putting them together in a way that related to Jews. Jews were all about the law. They were all about the rabbi sitting and teaching. And so he pictures Jesus sitting down on a mountain, teaching the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, and so on. But Luke doesn't put the Beatitudes as a one-moment event. He has Jesus declaring it here. They go to another town. He declares it again. And doesn't that make sense? How many times do you think Jesus preached those Beatitudes? How many times did the disciples hear him utter those words? Just once? The most, as some people call it, the most profound sermon that's ever been preached. He only preached it once. Chances are when they followed him around, all around Israel, he taught the kingdom. And those are the kingdom teachings. And Matthew's put it together for us. The point there is that Jesus preached. He preached, the Son of God preached, as a means by which God had decreed and ordained that people would come to the knowledge of the truth. The other means is prayer. We've just read it in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Pray, first of all pray, so that people may come to the knowledge of the truth. So here's how I would suggest to you my preaching, Tony's preaching, Donna's preaching, Bob's preaching, anyone else preaching on behalf of our church, in our church, to our church, or from our church, could be really, really, really ineffective. Don't pray for them. Don't pray for them. And that's why when I was in Montana and I heard, and I've told Will Graham to his face, I've said something along the lines of, and please don't think I'm offensive, I said, Will, the way you preached at times, I thought you'd lost everyone, particularly the kids. But then when you came to the appeal to give your life to Christ, and by the way, people said this of his grandfather. When he gave the appeal, literally hundreds came forward, many of whom had tears streaming down their face because the Spirit of God had transformed them. And I remember I was with the superintendent of the Baptist churches of Tasmania, 
And we looked at each other and we just said, that has got to be God. That has just got to be God. But you know what else we saw? We met two, shall I say, older ladies before the services. And they travel with Will at their own expense, wherever he goes, and they are his intercessors. He also has a prayer coordinator. It's his job to get prayer happening before the event. They then have a prayer team that, do, that don't participate in the service. They go off to a room to the side and all they're doing is praying for Will while he's preaching. They pray for him in between the meetings. They pray for him during the meetings. They pray after the meetings. And it was so impressive. I came back thinking, man, I wish I had that. Wish I had that. I'd appreciate you praying for me on a Sunday. Next Sunday, Tony's preaching in the morning. I'm pretty sure he would appreciate a couple of people praying for him. Donna is going to be taking this pulpit next Sunday night and preaching from here. She would appreciate prayer as well. We have people nearly every Sunday coming to our church who do not know Christ. Every Sunday. I wonder what would happen if we prayed for the word to be effective in their hearts. Paul has given these two great means by which God has ordained that people will come to know Christ. Preaching the word can be from a pulpit or it can be over a cafe table. It could be across a lounge room. It could be in a work canteen. It could be in your everyday life. And the second means by which God has ordained is prayer. You may not be a preacher, but you can pray for one. Pray that God uses them. Jesus said this, The harvest is plentiful, but the labourers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly. I wonder what he means or meant by earnestly pray. What does it sound like to you? It doesn't sound like reading the words off a page with no heart, does it? Earnestly pray. The thing, this is the thing. Jesus elevates prayer to a level at a time when prayer was ritual. At a time when prayer was just words on a page that people read out and they would say it. The Jews would wake up every morning and they would recite lamentations. Just a part of lamentations. Your mercies are new every morning. I wonder if they just said it. But yet Jesus prayed and I'm thinking that just before he was taken to the cross, he looks Peter in the eye. Peter, after Peter adamantly denied to Jesus that he would ever deny him, Jesus says to him this, Simon, I have prayed for you that your faith may not us, We want a pastoral tone in our church. We want our home group leaders to be pastoral, to care, to be shepherds. But I think we need to have a pastoral tone that involves, dare I say it, a balance of care for people, prayer for people's needs, prayer for the lost, equipping people with the word, helping people, correcting people. This morning when I stopped and I spoke to three young boys to be quiet, I'm mindful of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, which, which says you have to learn how to behave in the house of God. I wanted them to learn it. I went up to one of them after and I was pleased that Stephen did as well, not because of what I'd done, but I went up to one and, and just sort of rubbed his head and, and his name's Sam. I said, Sam, 
I'm going to call you Noisy Sam. And he laughed, so I was rather relieved at that. But that's called discipline. That's called discipling. We need to do that, but we also need, as shepherds, to be involved in evangelism, to do what we can. It's not, well, I'm not an evangelist, not my, not my job, someone else's job. Paul addresses that in 2 Timothy, where he says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist, which tells me he was no evangelist, but he had to do the work of an evangelist. So in 1 Peter, sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul links this second decreed, ordained means by which people come to know Christ. When Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ. That's all we have time for tonight. If you'd like to obtain a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, please go to our website, findingtruthmatters.org and select Dear Timothy, Part 3 from our online store. As we've heard tonight, God has authorised that preaching and praying be the means by which people come to know Him. Praying needs to be the first priority in any evangelistic effort we might make. More from Dr Corbett next week with part four, Dear Timothy, 